0: on today's episode of hungry for wisdom people be hurting evil be eviling, and disciples be tripping but as you remember from season one we have a gospel that is perfectly suited to fix it it is episode 78 turn it up What a privilege we have today! It's actually a pre-recorded privilege because we hit the road to sit down and get an interview with Doctor Greg Jantz. So Pastor Greg and I uh, hopped in the truck and drove over to Edmonds, Washington, so that we could sit and have a uh, conversation with Doctor Jantz. J A N T S. Uh, hopefully, you've read some of his books or seen him around or something. He's on radio. He's on all sorts of you know podcasts and stuff. The guy's everywhere. What he does is he uh, he began and now runs the center, a place for hope over in Edmonds. And they're helping people through all kinds of stuff. It's, you know, it's addiction, it's depression, it's anxiety, it's, uh, you know, the, the general mental health field. But they do it in a, a really interesting way, which I'm not going to get into too much right now because he'll explain the whole thing. But basically, it's, it's the counter to that kind of thing where you just go in and say, well, I feel sad. And they're like, well, here's a buffet full, uh, full of pills and uh, you go ahead and just numb yourself and then we'll cause more problems that will medicate then and you'll be a uh, frequent flyer. A great customer for the pharmaceutical companies. So... He actually wants to help people and he's doing a good job. When we run into counseling situations here that sometimes we need to refer out, then there are cases where we'll send people over there for an inpatient program and he's, he'll talk about his approach here, but I mean, it's, you know, he's just leveling stuff out. He's like, here's how God has designed people. And so we're going to hit these needs. We're going to diagnose which of these things is broken and then, you know, feed into that. And so he can really help get uh, people baseline and ready for some long-term, uh, uh, you know, Treatment, I guess, or, or addressing long-term issues, behavioral changes that need to happen, um, and so on. The Christian word for that, by the way, is repentance. So, <laughs> you know, but a lot of times, and this is why we wanted to talk to him, is because a lot of times there's when there's mental health issues involved, even though it's kind of become a buzzword these days, um, what that is, what a mental health issue is, is a barrier between people and a straightforward statement of fact or a solution to their problem or whatever. Mental health is is... I don't want to over summarize it or or um, be too reductionistic about it. But basically what you're dealing with mental health is where people will, will see, or or sometimes have trouble seeing a solution to the problem, but there's barriers between, or there's filters between them and being able to grab onto it. And so that's, that's the stuff that we get into now these days you guys have heard me rant about this before you'll hear me do a little micro rant on this episode but basically between the worldview that we've been pumping out for the last hundred and yeah 150 years in the West and then at least a hundred years in our education system uh, the the worldview uh, that is is nihilistic and hopeless uh, without purpose and without um, uh, really without passion and and without a drive behind it, and certainly without a gospel and a good God who personally loves you and notices you, that worldview dr- separates people from the truth that God actually did design us and, and made us for a reason. And He has planned out good works beforehand that we might walk in them. And so we're separating people from truth and creating sort of these mental health barriers, right? Because we're having people operate. In, in delusions, essentially. So, uh, we're, we're seeing the effects of that now in culture. And then with the over medication and then with, um, you know, the isolation that happened during the shutdown and so on, there's all sorts of stuff that's happening with, with uh, a mental health crisis, which Dr. Jance will call a mental health pandemic. I think that's a good term for it. And so he's going to just kind of walk us through, diagnose it, um, tell us what we're dealing with and, and then start talking about how to, how to help some people. The reason that we did this interview was so that we could, do the Ephesians 4.12 thing. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We want to equip you guys to help people who are suffering, who are hurting, and to make disciples in a landscape where mental illness is now the norm rather than an exception and something that you can just refer out. There's just too many of them now. So um, anyway, I'm forgetting what I might be saying that uh, that I already said in the conversation. So I will shut up and get out of the way. And uh, here is Dr. Greg Jantz. I hope you guys learned something from this because I certainly did. So, with that intro then out of the way, Dr. Greg Jantz. Now, I'm going to go with Dr. Jantz and Greg because we've got two Gregs in the room, and so I hope uh, I hope you're okay with me just addressing <laughs> you as Dr. Jantz all day. That's okay.
1: I'd like to see how Greg would answer a question as well. Well, yeah,
0: okay. we got we got Dr. Greg and yeah. Pastor Greg. So, uh, yeah, Greg Jantz and uh, Greg Gothard, our yeah. beloved illustrious Pastor Greg, and we're here at uh, the center a place for hope. So Dr. Jantz, um, you just gave us a tour of this place. Love the work that you're doing here. We've gotten to work together on various issues that uh, neither of us can talk about because confidentiality is a big deal in both of our lines of work. So um, I'll just tell our listening audience that I really appreciate, you know, all the work that, that you have done over the years. And um, it's, it's a pleasure to work with you. We look forward to doing more. But why oh, don't you yes. just give us a quick rundown of what what happens here, maybe here. The, the, the total picture of, of the services provided. Yes.
1: By the way, uh, August of this year will be our 39th year. Okay. Fantastic. Which seems really funny to say that as I'm sitting here with you. 39 years, because, one, I don't... F- if you feel that old, and I probably feel more passionate. I'm literally not
0: that old. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've been here 39 years yeah, wow. in,
1: in Edmonds. We chose Edmonds because it's a great community. Uh, our our clients, oh, about half, depending on the month, come from uh, outside the state of Washington, and about half come here. We were known early on for our work with eating disorders. The first first book I wrote was on eating disorders, but Um, We really wanted to apply this whole person philosophy beyond just an eating disorder, bulimia, anorexia. We wanted to take it, put it into depression, anxiety, addiction, post-traumatic stress disorder. We're seeing a lot of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And a lot of issues have really increased. I used to say post-pandemic are we're in a mental health crisis. But I think it's greater than that. I think we're in a mental health pandemic, and I don't think we've hit the top yet. The number of folks, understandably, seeking help, seeking counsel, feeling desperate, uh, has continued to grow and grow. In fact, in the state of Washington, during COVID and year 2021 in particular, we saw a lot of facilities in our state close down. Uh, Those that were relying on state funding and federal funding, a lot of 72 facilities closed down in the state. The need for help is even greater.
0: So they closed down, you're you're saying due to lack of funding.
1: Uh, It was a funding issue. Wow. But but post-COVID, now we have all the federal funding and, and so much funds out there, but we're still not able to address the needs that are present
0: yeah and the needs are growing so exponentially which is why we wanted to reach out and talk to you in the first place was because we're all like anybody who is tasked with addressing these issues is just drowning and there's nobody to refer to beyond a certain point right everybody's got waiting lists and so on the need is massive
1: the need is massive and it it really is growing and growing um we do things a little differently um when I was in school, I started, I think it was the Lord speaking, but I started to have kind of a vision for how to deliver mental health services differently. Um, And I always thought, this is a little confession, I always thought that people in psychology were a little weird. (laughs) And I thought, I don't want to be one of the weird ones. I really want to do something that's of of help, and I want to be a little different. And so when we first started, uh the first, besides myself, the next person we added was a person who was a, a pastor and a counselor. That was our next addition to the staff because I wanted to begin to address the whole person. Then we added, uh, started to add medical, uh, psychi- psychiatric care. Um, what we're finding right now is that the average client's coming in four or five medications as they're coming in. And they're saying things like, it's just not working.
0: Is there any pattern to what the medications are? Well, there's
1: a lot of anti-anxiety medications okay. and different antidepressants. Okay. So so our doctors here are actually doing, they're probably prescribing less. They're actually helping sort out all this over-medication that we see going on. And then we also have, uh, we have two naturopathic physicians. People love natural health care. Everybody here gets a wellness exam. They also meet with the dietician. Uh, oh, and we have a, a nurse who's an exercise uh, trainer. Everybody coming, just they get a fitness assessment. So you know where you are. And then a few blocks down from here, you get to go to the health club. Uh, and you get to start to do some things. We want to get people moving. Get them moving yeah. again. So, So the whole person is really important. What's unique is our staff all share a Christian faith as a foundation, and that's unique. And then we do uh, build uh, schedules differently. Somebody's with us, let's say, for four weeks. They're going to have a schedule that's been designed just for their needs. If they have a need to have more medical appointments, then we'll have more medical appointments. Everybody's schedule is a little different. So that's what we do, and I have to just say this. I'm probably more passionate now than I was years ago um, because I really feel like, oh, we're needed. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, and I'm seeing seeing things work, and that's exciting.
0: I can tell how passionate you are by your output of books. How many books have you written now? I was trying. Well, to count. the
1: latest one, Triumph Over Trauma. If you count the little mini books, which are like a hundred pages, yeah. um, that, that's the forty fifth book.
0: Okay, forty fifth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've I've read probably five or six years. Uh, the um, the the one that i read most recently was uh, so much to live for. Oh yeah. Right? Which was just for yeah. everybody else listening was a really great i'd recommend it to people. It was a really great resource for what to do when you uh, suspect that somebody might be suicidal. How do you help and engage? How do you kind of know what you're looking at? And i don't want to use the word diagnose because, you know, that's a specialized yeah. term obviously. But, you know, what how, how do you know what's a cause for concern and yes. if you're causing more problems than you're solving? It's i mean this is stuff that that you know, we soak in all the time, right? Uh, But people need to know this stuff because their neighbors and their kids and their kids' friends are are suffering and and things like that. So, yeah, so much to live for. I forget what the subtitle is, but I I really appreciated that book.
1: That's a book, if I could just add quickly, that's one I never, ever thought I would write. The topic of suicide was never, ever on my radar.
0: Sorry, I'm just going to adjust your microphone here. Just for sound
1: quality. There we go. Keep going after... The the topic of suicide was never, ever on my radar. I never th- even thought I would ever write a book on it. And then I started to see what was happening um, post-COVID, particularly year 2021, uh, we started to see suicides really go up. And it was really troublesome. It was just like, what do we do? And when I saw across the country our 12 to 17-year-olds... And I read that it's the second leading cause of death. And I go, man, what is going on? That's really what prompted that book. And then I looked at the county that we live in. And for the year 2021, if we take 10 to 17 years old, it was the leading cause of death. Wow. Yeah. And, and it's just like, I had this pit in my stomach. I go, what is going on? Because youth, suicide, those two terms shouldn't even go together yeah but so we that's is a part of the crisis that we have yeah psychologists even coined a new term uh, foreshortened future they're, they're saying that this generation has a foreshortened future which is a way of saying they don't have hope for their future there's a lot of apathy it's like and there's a lot of focus on death in our culture yeah
0: yeah and increasingly so it's interesting you know I we before covid one of the cities that we minister in had it's a city of about 4,000 people if you include the outlying areas, right? Uh, And it had 1.5 suicide attempts a week, and one of those 1.5 was Mm -hmm. under the age of 18. And then it got worse after COVID. So we're thinking, what is going on here, Mm -hmm. you know? And and the worship of death culture, you see this reintegration of of, um, like witchcraft and various other forms of ancient paganism, which are are sometimes just active death cults and, and very little other than... Than that, so there is a sort of a, a resurgence of interest in in doom. I guess mm-hmm. that's probably not the right way to put it, but but well, yeah, There is, Yeah, yeah. So they, the 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 clinical term for that was foreshortened future. They called
1: it foreshortened future. To me,
0: that seems really sanitized and unhelpful. But <laughs> it seems <laughs> I, like
1: the generation has a foreshortened future. It means they don't see hope for their future. Huh. So, but okay, but what's our what are we going to do about it?
0: Yeah. Well, so that was, and we had talked about this before when, uh, when we were sitting in the office, uh, uh, chatting a few months ago. The, it, by the way, audience, I'm sorry, micro rant here for a second. This is just a recap of some of the stuff we talked about. You know, for the last, let's say, hundred years, kind of since the Scopes trial, we've been systematically educating our kids that they're accidents, right? They're monkeys that can read, and okay. they have to figure out some kind of significance. But you got to make it up, and you got to carve it out yourself. So then we, after, after that, which takes away all hope and followed through to its logical conclusion, then for the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years, we've been medicating them every time they have an emotional fluctuation. Yes. And then for the last few years, we've been isolating them and gaslighting them, telling them that anybody that questions you know, beyond a certain point is trying to kill them. Like, of course they feel insane. Like, that's a, two plus two is four, you know? Mm-hmm. So we've got a massive cultural tide to turn back now. And none of us are sufficient for this task, right? But Pastor Greg, you've you've talked about the uh, the, the story of the starfish, the well-known story, right? You, right? You're on a beach full of, you know, you can tell it better than I can, but you're full yeah. of starfish. And what do you do, right?
2: Right. So you have a guy going down on, onto the beach. You know that story? Dr. Mm, yes. He picks it up and the people come running up to him and say, what are you doing? And, uh, you know, and the story goes, you, you, you must be out of your mind. You can't save all these starfishes. Yeah. And he said, no, but to this one, it matters. And he tosses him back into the sea so that the starfish can live. And that's really what we're seeing right now. It is really is one at a time. One yeah. at a time. Yes. we got to go after one at a time. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and to go along with your conversation, one of the things that I see that I deal with a lot of time is the social media integrating in. Parents are buying their kids cell phones and all the bullying and the attacks that happen within social media. And these kids have no hope. I can't get away from the doom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I could
0: um, just rabbit trail on that for a second, because we just did, it hasn't even actually been released as of the date of this recording. We just did an episode with a young lady in our church who's 15 and she has a podcast. And so we said, Oh, that's cool. Let's let's you know do a joint episode with her. And she's great. Christian Young Gal. Uh, her, her podcast is called I Freaking Love Talking. Yeah. So, so we listened to that. We said, yes. We gotta get this girl in here. She's awesome. Um, but we, we were talking to her about social media because yeah. she's fifteen, so she doesn't have a before and after snapshot of what social interactions were like. That's just her whole her whole experience. And so she was kind of removing herself from it, trying to evaluate objectively: is social media a net positive or a net negative in the life of me and my peers? Mm-hmm. And she she quickly came to the conclusion: it's a net negative. It's not helpful. Right. It's it's a reality that we have to deal with. But I don't think it's it's good, right? So from your perspective, then, Dr. Jance, the the before and after of um, hopelessness and depression with the advent of social media, let's say circa two thousand and seven ish, when it kind of blew up, right? Um, and smartphones and all that the what what new challenges are we dealing with now in this generation who's been soaked in social media that go above and beyond the challenges that were normal before that
1: yes and there are new challenges uh pastor dustin that's a
0: great question other than their posture we see we see that from chiropractors (laughs) like yeah i got middle schoolers that are hunched over like old men what's going
1: on yeah they're looking at that device text neck they call it. yes so here's what we're seeing um During COVID, depending on where you lived, schools were closed down and so forth. What it did was it drove kids even more into social media. They, kids are like herds. They just follow herd, and the social media was the herd. Certain apps were, and they create their own world. It's where they go to find out everything. You know, they don't search Google, they are using social media. Uh, that's the source of information. Well, it's actually a very poor source of information. But the first thing you do in social media is you compare. You're on Instagram and there's a picture and you go, oh, you know, and you you think of appearances. Mm-hmm. And when we compare, we always feel inferior. And so social media also, um, the way it works is the dopamine, that chemical in the brain, it's kind of our, you get it when you exercise, it's kind of that pleasure chemical, you feel good. We call it dopamine hits. Social media really elevates and causes a lot of dopamine to pump out.
0: So when you get the the, the, uh, like. the notification <laughs> yeah, yeah. that somebody liked your post yes. or whatever, that's a dopamine hit. It is.
1: Yeah. Over time. Mm-hmm. Over time. Yeah. I was having a conversation with my youngest son not long ago. And his name is, he, he likes to be called Benji. I said, Benji, tell me about your, your friends now. He's in college. He goes, I have lots of friends. I will tell me about them. He goes, well, they're all online. I go, have you ever seen them? No, but we're friends. I go, oh, wait a minute. How do you know your friends? He goes, we're friends, we know each other. Social media gets a false sense of a relationship. You go to instant intimacy. You feel like you know somebody instantly, but you really don't. And if they like you, we're friends. So you skip all the normal relationship stages where you build trust, get to know somebody. It's all instant.
0: Well, and that truncated nature of the relationship is evident even in the the terminology we use. Like, to say, I friended that person. Yes. Well, friendships take time to form, but now it's just a click of a button, right? Now a a friend is a a verb instead of a noun. It's a very strange phenomenon.
1: Yes, and the anxiety levels for our youth really shot up. Right now, today the most common diagnosis that we have, that's been given by uh, primary care physicians, is not a medical diagnosis. Right now, it was depression. Uh, depression's number two. Anxiety is the number one diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So you go to your doctor, the doctor asks you a few questions that are kind of not medical related because they're required to now. And the diagnosis ends up being anxiety so often. Well, that's kind of a non-medical diagnosis unless you have a medical issue causing it, but that's what's happening. And one form of anxiety that we're seeing is anticipatory anxiety. People right now, they're on edge, they're hypersensitive, they're hypervigilant, they're easily startled, and they're waiting for the next bad thing the next day. We just kind of anticipate it. Mm-hmm. Well. If you jump in the news, there always is the next bad thing every day. More than one bad thing. So we're living with all this anticipating bad things. So we have a lot of anxious people.
2: Yeah, we're seeing an elevation in panic attacks versus anxiety disorder. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between About panic attacks? Yeah. Yes Well
0: and versus Anxiety disorders That's that's a really Interesting thing Because to feel anxiety Is not the same thing As to have a, an Anxiety disorder
1: Yes Right. We may all feel Something happens And you, the immediate Response is anxiety You just can't live In that You can't stay in that So we also know Okay so there's Social anxiety This is where the Kids are The younger kids Are really struggling The social anxiety The isolation um, The most recent Survey showed That 61% of Americans felt Lonely. So loneliness and anxiety go together. I have to venture to guess, it's probably higher than 61% feeling lonely. That loneliness factor has really gone up. So there's the social anxiety. People are isolating, turning to social media instead of real relationships. Um, And we started doing that. We had the work from home thing that didn't really work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we isolated. Um, Then we have this just free-floating anxiety. People are just generally anxious. And if you stay in that chronic state of anxiousness, that state of chronic stress, after a while, people begin to look, how am I going to feel differently? They want to mood elevate. So what do I do? Well, I, I may turn secretly to alcohol. I might turn to food. I might just jump in the digital world. Uh, but we look for a way, of, a way of escape, a way of feeling different. Um, now, anxiety always means there's a physical component. Anxiety... Um, if you look at the brain when you have an anxiety, panic attack, the blood flow that's normally in the prefrontal cortex right here, it kind of goes back. Your blood flow is less. And this is where we make all of our good decisions in the, in the pit, you know, in the forehead there. So that's where God designed what we call our executive function. It's where you're supposed to make good decisions. You're anxious and back here in the more primitive part of the brain, the fight or flight, um, we're, we're pumping a lot uh, and blood flow is, is stronger there. And this is where people could have a panic attack. I'm anxious. I just had a guy not long ago. Uh, he was on the freeway and driving on the freeway and he's struggling with anxiety. So, and uh, a lot of things related to the pandemic. The stress was pretty heavy. He's like in the middle lane and his vision starts to get blurry. And he he says he broke out in this instant cold sweat and he felt his heart like pounding out of his chest. And and his vision's blurry, he thought he was having a heart attack. And he worked himself over to the side of the road. Um, 10 minutes later, he kind of realizes I'm I'm still alive. And, um, And what he had was a panic attack. Panic attack's kind of the body's way of saying, I've had enough it's a physiological reaction so and that's it's usually a lot of stored anxiety but then we get, the panic attack is so horrible cuz you feel like you're dying then we really develop a fear of the panic the fear the fear just increases cuz you're afraid that's going to happen again so so the the
0: normal outworkings of these stresses that build up the stored anxiety those normal outworkings happen through things like social interactions and physical yes. exercise and all the stuff that stopped during
1: yes. the pandemic in, in a lot of ways. You know, one of the things, during the pandemic, um, generally water intake really decreased for most people. It's crazy. And uh, they drank other things. You know, the 12 cups of coffee a day, or, um, you know, they turned to alcohol. We had a whole group of clients who were really computer and I, IT people, and they were working from home. But what we started to see is they said, you know... I started drinking about 4 o'clock, you know, after the end of my workday at home, Uh, but three months passed, now I'm starting to drink at at lunchtime, and they're drinking all through the afternoon as they're working. That's what happened.
0: Which is great in the Tri-Cities when most of our people are in the (laughs) nuclear industry, and (laughs) it's real comforting.
1: Yes. Yeah. Drinking, working from home, whatever, writing computer code, not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: so all the stuff you guys do here, you, you take this multi-pronged approach, the, yes. the, the physical, the spiritual, the, the psychological. I mean, you were, you were giving us a tour here, and you said, okay, we've got some you know, mental health experts over here and clinicians. We've got a doctor over here. We've got these you know, training centers and group classes over yeah. here. So you've got all these different approaches to things, or all, all these different um, uh, methods of attack, I guess you would say, vectors of attack, uh, on whatever a person's problem might be to get them well, yeah. to get them whole. And one of my questions is, what types of problems can you not address here? Oh, sure. What kind of stuff shows up where you're just like, that's, that's not anything that, that a professional can help with? Right.
1: So we're not a detox facility. Um, if, if it's an alcohol addiction and a person needs detox, they usually have that three to five days, and they come from there to here. Um, we don't treat heroin or, or fentanyl. Um, there's a level of addiction that we're, that's not our area. But when a person's in recovery, we're perfect for them. Okay. Yeah. And they're no longer using, maybe they're really struggling. Um, feeling like, man, I, I feel like I'm going to drink. And you're struggling, but um, they're not actively drinking every day. Okay. They may relapse while they're with us, and we, we work with that.
0: Strange question, and, and this is a little bit maybe outside of the, the programmatic level of what you do here. I wonder how much um, worldview factors into a lot of this stuff, right? Like people believe certain things about themselves; they have they have underlying truth claims and plausibility structures and things like that, and they're and they're not true, right. right? And if you if you live contrary to the truth, there's a crash and burn somewhere, and we just hope to get to people before the crash and burn is that they wake up in hell, separated from Christ forever, right? But there's, but the more the more secularism increases, the more yeah. hopelessness increases, and this whole host of issues. They've, yeah. they've got that hockey stick spike, right? So, are are there any patterns to the the worldview, the the harmful um, worldviews that people come in with that need to get addressed in order for them to be well on an ongoing basis? Does that question even the make change
1: sense? change of worldview. Do I have to change how I'm thinking yeah. or see things? Yeah, I mean, because
0: you can, we, we all know this, you can give somebody the tools to do well and they'll do well for a little while, but if if the underlying um, framework un, by which they understand their value and their existence is off, they're going to wind up right back in despair again, right? So what what are the patterns that you see as far as, like, people generally now believe this about themselves and that's leading to X problems?
1: Right. That's actually a really good question. Here's what we've noticed... Um, there's some critical points after a person leaves their care with us. Uh, We have an alumni program that is included and and it's actually Zoom. Once a week they can plug in with other alumni and it's a clinical person talking. Um, But then we do a follow-up at the one-year mark. And here's what we hear a lot. They'll say things like, well, I learned a lot of skills, my time there was really helpful, but it was my faith it has kept me on the right path. Uh, well, that's so interesting because that's a change of worldview. Hmm. Um, they've either developed faith in God. Or they've come to the realization of God can be in their life. Because <laughs> you know? um, a lot of times they'll come to us, they, sh- they feel shameful, dis- defective, and they feel like, oh, God doesn't love me or nobody really loves me. So they really have a change in how they see themselves and I'm going to say how, how they realize they are lovable. And worldview gets changed when they experience forgiveness. It's like either I'm receiving forgiveness or I'm having, having to practice what forgiveness means. If there's any one single issue that every client has on some level, it's something to do with forgiveness. Really. So it's maybe it's forgiveness of self or forgiveness of somebody that abused them. But they don't realize that unforgiveness has been such a toxic burden and that bitterness, how that's affected their whole life. It's affected all their relationships. So that's one single issue. I think when they experience forgiveness or give forgiveness, their worldview starts to change. It's a more hopeful future.
2: And it also also attacks physiologically, right? That mindset. I, I actually watched my dad go through that. Okay. He was actually put in an institution in Texas where uh, they diagnosed him with schizophrenia and all kinds of things. And his, his, what was really going on with him is he had so much pain going on for, and because of unforgiveness, it literally destroyed him physically. Mm-hmm. And helping those guys to treat the bitterness, yes, literally put him back on a trajectory mm-hmm. to get him whole again. Mm-hmm. So uh, we see that a lot. Mm-hmm. So I here. want
0: you guys listening to, to have an appreciation for what you just heard. Here's a guy that's running a center that had, what would you say, Dr. Janssen, 700 uh, contacts or requests for help or more information? Oh, last month it
1: was 700 and something mm-hmm. inquiries.
0: 700 and something inquiries in the last month. And he's saying that the number one problem or one of the number one issues that he's running into is, is forgiveness issues. All right, audience. Are you guys catching this? Yeah. <laughs> there's,
2: it's there's a big some, issue.
0: Yeah, there's something here that we don't we don't maybe talk about enough, right? Mm-hmm. And and I wonder I wonder what, what the counterfeit um, uh, responses are to that, whether it's from you know the 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 professional side where I mean we're all concerned about over medication, especially with the youth, right? It's like they yes. just they just throw pills at these kids for anything. Oh, you got anxiety, here's some, you know, here's some pills. The, we all know that's a band-aid for something, right? Right. That seems to be the forgiveness issue—the the guilt, the shame, the forgiveness, the reconciliation—that whole cluster of ideas. Uh, you know, seeing the emphasis that you put on it, that's making me think we don't give that enough uh, enough attention in our conversations
1: on these issues. Probably not in the mental health field, right? Interesting. Yes. Okay. But if I if I've been a victim of, let's say, sexual abuse, at some point, I have to figure out how am I going to forgive and forgive what happened to me because it starts to break a pattern. And I think for some people that go, there's no way it feels so overwhelming. I had a, a lady once that said, I, there's no way I can do that, because if I forgive, I will lose my mind. It's too much. I'll, I'll lose my mind. So that's how overwhelming it can seem.
0: Yeah. Well, and also, we have a... a- uh, a strange definition of forgiveness a lot of times I'd, well, like, I'd like to hear what you mean by that because this is a hard thing for people to nail down I saw a book on your uh, your shelf downstairs um that was and I forget who wrote it I'd never seen it before but I was like I want to read that book and it was it was um, practicing just forgiveness or something like that it, it was forgiving without invalidating the injustice that happened sure. without brushing over it you know so when you say forgiveness can you give us a definition of that because it's not the same as pretending something never
1: happened yeah we never forget. If you were abused or you had some significant trauma, you don't ever forget. Uh, but what you're deciding is it's no longer, and I'm going to say with God's help, it's no longer going to have that power in my life to determine my future. Um, forgiveness means I'm going to release uh, what was done to me. So it's kind of a way, if you will, of detoxifying and I'm going to make sure I'm clean of resentment. I'm, I'm clean of bitterness. And maybe it's self-forgiveness. Maybe you made a lot of decisions you really regret. So, And so it's really saying, I am releasing the effects of this, and I'm not, with God's help, I'm going to let that project my future. God has a different future.
0: What about when somebody needs to receive forgiveness? Do, yeah. Does that have the same effect on them when they feel the shame of what they have done and they need to be forgiven? What Does that cause a, a, the same set of problems as when they need to forgive, or is that a different set of
1: problems you have to address? I think ultimately the outcome is the same, but if I receive forgiveness, I understand what that means. I think there is such a, it brings a great hope for the future. Okay, My future has a hope. Um. And I feel forget, I feel perhaps I've got a new start. And also, in understanding really what receiving God's forgiveness, I have a new understanding of God's love for me. And my life has a purpose, and I'm not going to let my past determine the future. God's, what was meant for evil is going to be used for good now.
2: I I can have that perspective. The most incredible passages in scriptures when you find our Lord on the cross and He says, "Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing." Yes. And uh, you know, you can chase that in a thousand different theological ways. What did He really mean by that? But you know, quintessentially, come back to, He really meant that. Yeah, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, and then takes that and dies for the sin of the whole world. That's good. And then he takes that and runs with it. And, and people have a really difficult time saying, somebody that I abused and just murdered, just ask his father to forgive me mm-hmm. for all this stuff. And God is a just and holy God. And so people then struggled with it, and people certainly struggle with it now in that whole world of forgiveness. And that's what happened with my dad, getting him to the point where he can say, I forgive that that moment that created that environment to end up in mental health care. Uh, finally, it's what got him whole again. He was able to forgive and walk out of their hole. Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah, and I think even, even in our, our church ministry or evangelism context, when we talk about forgiveness in the gospel, it's, it's easy for people to misunderstand what that is because you hear Christians say things like, well, God doesn't remember anything that, that you've yeah. done that's bad. Actually not true. When it says he will remember your sins no more in like Psalm 103, for example, you know, he'll remove them as far as the East is from the West. We gotta understand that's dealing poetically because it also says that in, in Revelation, when they're glorifying Christ in heaven, they're glorifying him for dying for sins. They're remembering this stuff, not just the, the sin, but what he did to confront it and and you know have victory over it. So to your point, Dr. Jance, forgiveness cannot be the same as forgetting. So then for our audience then, maybe we could just I know I'm springing this on you. Maybe we could just give them a real quick next step. If if you are somebody who needs to forgive somebody, what do you do
1: next? Sometimes we've tried to bury it, so we need to deal with the reality. Let's just say that you were victimized and you had significant trauma, and maybe it's something that happened repeated times. Emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and that is so damaging. It really is. So, But I have to not ignore it um, or excuse it, so I've got to deal with the reality of it. And sometimes, um, you know, writing down and and just putting down what were the events that were traumatic in your life, And, and I don't mean you're going to focus on that, but sometimes I've got to write it down Look at, maybe it's a dozen things. Maybe it it happened for years. Um, But i got to deal with the reality of what what did happen. So I don't want you to hide from it. Now, sometimes that can feel really overwhelming, and I need to work with somebody who's qualified to help me through that. Um, Because that's pretty traumatic. Um, Then I need to look at, and maybe I can make some. what are all the effects of this? Have I struggled in my relationships? do I have a hard time trusting people? Have I made repeated patterns of unhealthy decisions in relationships? Am I living a promiscuous lifestyle? You know what? What are the effects of that? And just kind of writing out that, and that's hard to see sometimes. Um, sometimes I developed a belief I don't deserve anything good. This is what I deserve. So. Write out what are the things you believe now about yourself. Part of it is just putting out the reality. What's the effects? What do I believe about myself? And then I really think you have to um, work with somebody. And I can, again, I think it can be really, feels feels really overwhelming. Um, but to work with somebody who could then help you decide, because sometimes we don't go to an abuser and ask for their forgiveness. Sometimes that's not a wise idea. So uh, sometimes an abuser is is dead. What do I do with that? Um, A personal example. I had a grandfather who was, I think we would use the term rageaholic. Scream and yell. I was on the receiving end of a lot of that. Um, You know, I had opportunity later in life to forgive him before he died, but you know what, I, have, I don't do what I did. I, I learned a lot. I avoided him. I wouldn't have a relationship with him. Um, I remember I was in college, and he went for an open-heart surgery, he, and I had a chance to talk to him. I didn't take that chance. I didn't want anything to do with him. Um, he died on the operating table. Many years later, I find myself... At the gravesite, reading my forgiveness letter uh, to my grandfather, and I go, "Okay, it was good. I completed it, but there was another way. I wish I would have handled it." Yeah, and that's what go. Okay, so I I had a, something happen to me. It's like to the best of my ability. I'm not going to live with unforgiveness to anybody. I'm going to do my part. I can't control the other person, but I'm going to do my part. I don't want to do this again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so so the power of that. Yeah, but we, there's something that happens when we confess, and there's something that happens when we ask for forgiveness, even if that person's not alive. I call it the power of release. Power of release. That's good, Greg.
0: Yeah, and if you look at how Jesus offers forgiveness, he releases us from a debt. That's one of the. I, th- I think you actually taught me this, Greg. Was you know to release somebody from a debt from what you you feel they owe you or holding against them until they repay to you in some yeah. form, which oftentimes is unrepayable. You're you're expecting something emotionally that's not going to happen, right? But to release them from that debt, and that's different than. Forgetting. It's different yeah. than pretending it didn't happen. But Jesus says, I'm releasing you from the debt that your actions have, have caused. And so I'm, I'm trying not to sermonize here because so much of what you're saying, <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Jance, is like. It, it just walks along gospel contours, yes. right? It's like, this is the Sermon on the Mount, right? Everything from anxiety to yes. forgiveness to, I mean, even depression. There's a lot in the Bible about depression. You look at what David was going through when he wrote some of those psalms. That's diagnosable material, you know? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Well, you go all the way back and look at Moses' life and the, the Apostle Paul, where they they literally they were so in love with the people that God entrusted to them that it... When God was ready to judge their sin, they, they defaulted to, Lord, please don't do that. Take my life. Take my name out of the book of life. Do whatever you got to do. I will pay that penalty myself mm. if you would do that to protect your wow. people and save your people. So you saw Paul do it with the Jews. Yeah. You saw Moses do it in his ministry. And,
0: and you saw Jesus do it on the cross. And
2: right? we saw Jesus do it on the cross. So they modeled Jesus way back then. Yeah. And then here we are. So I pre-imposed. guess you could say
0: love is a precondition for forgiveness. Yeah. Love, of course, not being a, a feeling, but a, yeah. a decision to count somebody else's needs is more significant yeah. than your own, right? And
2: then God honors the forgiveness.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: Yes. That's right.
0: I feel that we've arrived at some healing here, gentlemen. <laughs> me. Let me ask you, Dr. Jantz, about uh, the, the big three, as, as I heard you call them. So anxiety, depression, and addiction, right?
1: Those um, are the big three right now, for sure.
0: Yeah, so... You, you say right now, I want to know basically why those are, because there's a lot of other things that I'm surprised don't make the list. Things such as, I mean, you mentioned uh, eating disorders, um, yes. abuse, trauma, other things like that. Are these all, like, subcategories of one of the big three? Like, why are those on top?
1: Well, I think trauma could be a reason for a lot of anxiety. Trauma could be the reason for a struggle with depression.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're talking with the big three. You're talking about what people are presenting with that you're yes. having to deal with, not necessarily the root causes of things. Correct. Okay.
1: Okay. They may be coming in and say, "Man, i I think I'm depressed. I've been feeling this way for the last few years, and I'm not getting better." So that so that's their way of describing what's happening. Okay. Right. Um, a person may have had a lot of loss in the last couple of years. Could have been the loss of a job. Um, a loved one died, so we're seeing a lot of grief and loss that's created uh, a lot of uncertainty for them and their future. So there's a lot of uncomp or I'm sorry, complicated grief. Hmm. Where you know, we just had a situation yesterday: um, a 40 year old female uh, just dropped over dead. Okay, um, they said it was a heart attack. Well, 40 year old females just don't have heart attacks. That's a comp- for the family. This is like unexplainable, complicated grief that will be very hard to resolve.
0: So, that could show up as anxiety, depression could lead to yes. addiction if handled improperly, yes. things like that.
1: Yeah, the addiction rate during COVID really went way up. Um, the Alcohol Beverage Association, um, <coughs> it's like, I mean. They're excited. They've sold, <laughs> um, it was a billion dollars of beer each week for eight weeks.
0: That was during the shutdown?
1: Yes. A billion dollars. Uh, that was just beer. Uh, I hope Bud Light saved some of that money because they're probably living <laughs> on it right now. <laughs> Is that just incredible? Well, to say... We've never sold a billion dollars, or not we, they have never sold a billion dollars of beer in a week for eight weeks yeah. in a row. I'm thinking, wow, what's going on here? Here's what happens. The things you started to do during COVID, people have just continued to do. I started drinking during COVID. Now I said I would stop, but now I'm still doing the same thing. You look at rates of pornography
0: addiction and things like that, of course, that all went through the roof, you know, and then various forms of abuse when you lock people at home with their abusers and so on. Yes. One thing that, that Pastor Greg and I have spent a lot of time, well, I should rephrase that. I've spent a lot of time dealing with this under your mm-hmm. leadership, Greg, because you kind of showed me, you know, years ago, mentored me in what, what a pornography addiction does to a guy and oh, how, or, or a gal yeah. and how that rewires the brain and so on. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've seen all of these, Doctor Janse, a million times. But Pastor Greg showed me one time. Um, he gave me these, uh, these these files of brain scans of people that mm, you know, Doctor Dan had, Amen's yes. scans, yeah, Dan yes. Amen's stuff. Yeah. So for for the audience, they, they've they've got brain scans of people with long standing severe drug addictions to heroin or meth or whatever else, and then a long standing severe pornography addiction, and the scans look the same. I mean, it just decimates the brain because it's a it's a chemical alteration when you're, you know, um, uh, when you're, what's the word I'm looking for? Like synthetic Mm -hmm. pleasure centers, right? You're just instigating those dopamine hits over Mm -hmm. and over and it rewires the way that your brain actually physically looks over time. So then have you, um, have you noticed since the shutdown when all of these behaviors, not just pornography, but all these other things that have, you know, um, uh, deleterious effects, how has that changed your the business, ministry, practice. I mean, I'm not sure what word you would use for it, but what looks different now than it did five years ago at A Place for
1: Hope? Well, I think we're seeing more a higher acuity. The needs are greater, the suffering is greater, the addiction rate is greater, uh, person who's been struggling with depression. It seems like all the symptoms have intensified. So our, our word for that is that clients are coming in with a higher acuity um than before interesting okay mm-hmm.
0: so then is that had to have you had to change your approach or did you pretty much find you had an approach that was actually sufficient for this you just it, there's a bigger need for we it we
1: haven't changed our approach um but we're very careful because some high high acuity the person could be suicidal mm-hmm. um, maybe they need a detox alcohol or drug detox um, so we, we want to make sure in that acuity that we are ready for them. Okay. okay. Um, to go back to something that
0: our uh, the, the, um, uh, Reese, our 15-year-old guest, the podcast host, yes. something that she said, I, I asked her a question uh, on on the show, and I said, you know, how does your life look different at 15 years old than your mom's or your grandma's did at 15 years old? What's your impression of that? Right. I just wanted to get her talking about it. And her answer was interesting to me. She said, um, she said life is always stressful being a teenage girl is always stressful but she said I think there's just a lot more stress now she said her impression of it was there's a lot more pressure because they have more credits to complete in school and they've got you know the, the constant again social media was part of it just the constant um, feedback loops and, and that kind of thing mm-hmm. um, would, you, would you agree that the youth are under more pressure than before or mm-hmm. are there just uh, um, well I, I should back up Underlying this this whole thing is that the youth mental health crisis is probably the most severe of uh, the most severe segment of all the mental health issues going on right? I think so, now, right? yes. Okay. Yes. And and the highest risk biggest, you know, um, uh, blast radius sort of when when something goes wrong with the youth. Okay, so with that then, would you agree with her that that the youth are under far more stress now than they have been in previous generations or is there just different ways of engaging it and handling it that aren't working?
1: I think are more stress. I think there's more intrusions into their life, there's more uh, gender confusion, things that we didn't really have before. <laughs> uh, kids are being told they're not okay. Yeah, it's like you're not okay being a female. The messages are, and the focus on death, the death culture. Wow. Uh, so I think it's all more intense.
0: So this is the second time you've brought up the focus on death. What are you seeing there? The,
1: well, with the youth. Um, yeah. This whole idea that I don't really matter. The, f- the future is gonna, is not great. So there's a diminishing of the value of life. Okay. That's what we're seeing.
0: Everybody, it seems to me like everybody is, is contemplating suicide all the time. That's like step number one. for. So I'm a millennial, and below me is the Gen Zs, right? Yes. Or whatever we're going to decide to call them over the next couple decades. But for millennials and Gen Z, it's like, I'm stressed. I thought about suicide, that's like where we go,
1: what, right? What is going on there? That's the intensity, man. Yeah, and yeah, the right. hopelessness.
2: Well, and I think a lot of that has to do with they don't know who they are or what they are or whose they are, yeah. right? So Psalm one thirty nine is a go to thing for mm-hmm. us, and you know, you're fearfully wonderfully made. God mm-hmm. knew you together in another room. Your name was written in the Lamb Book of Life. Your the days that God has set for you are numbered. And, and helping them to realize who they are yes. and whose they are, has been very helpful. But it's we still get it. it That's grows, good. really good, know. Greg. That's right.
0: So let, let me run a scenario with you. Um, a parent has a kid that is showing some concerning uh, behaviors. Okay, let's right. say let's say the kid is preteen, teenager that that age. Um, one of the first responses is to medicate them now this is not clinical this is anecdotal this is just me looking at you know interacting with parents and kids and i'm like i'm sorry your 12 year olds on how many medications for what now and and it seems to me like the normal stress of life is just getting medicated away and that's barely an overstatement like right. barely right so then if if we if if our kids are presenting these concerning signs of depression or anxiety or whatever we don't want to run straight for the pills. What do we do, right? Because there's a high likelihood that if we take them to a a mental health professional, then that's where they're going to go, right? At least it seems that way from the outside. So from an insider in the the mental health field, what do parents do that are having this concern?
1: Well, I think there is a time when you see the symptoms, uh, two months have passed, three months, and you you see things are still there. There's normal stages that a teenager goes through that you think, whoa, what mental health is going on here? But, you know, a little time passes and they kind of come out of it. There's the normal developmental. Um, There's that process of them individuating away from parents a little bit, and sometimes it's a little hard for a parent. Um, They're spending more time with peers and now you're worried about who they're hanging out with or they've got those earbuds and they always have those in and and they spend excessive time in their room it seems like. But some of the normal things that kids may be going through. I'm looking for has there been significant academic failure uh, or that's harder than ever before. Are they with a different peer group or have they cut off from friends altogether? And are they going in and disconnecting, and they're isolated? So they are, and isolation is a real warning sign. I'm by myself for expen, expended, extended periods of time. Um, potential for drug use. There's a lot of drug experimentation. We live in a state where, quote, cannabis is legal. Cannabis is one of the worst things that you can do for a kid's brain. And kids are starting to use cannabis and chewables, edibles, and they're 13 years old. Um, and we know, we see this. There is a, um, it's a, basically a cannabis psychosis. You can see this overuse. You can see what it does to the brain. So I'm looking for the, for the kids. Are they experimenting uh, or are they in this pretty deep? I'm looking for um, pornography. Real use. quick on the
0: cannabis note, is that also true of CBD products, or is it, are we specifically talking about things with THC and uh, specifically model? with THC? Okay, got it. Yeah, I think that's important for parents to know. About, it is. So. Yes. Yes. Okay. Sorry. So now you're, you say you're looking for pornography. Pornography
1: and things like that. use. Um, is there cyber bully behavior? Mm. Um, is there, are they exchanging uh, pornographic or sexual pictures? Um, That bully issue can be really big. Okay. We had a situation a few years ago. um, A college student, a female, who made some big mistakes and had sent um, naked pictures of herself uh, to a boyfriend. They break up. He throws these pictures out into the social media world, and she finds out she ended up committing suicide. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that we're looking at. Um, and it, for a parent, by the way, for a parent, it can be super difficult. You may notice that your kids maybe are not that verbal, <laughs> they're not telling you a lot, and all of a sudden they're only answering questions in, How are you? Fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One word sentences. Uh, uh, How was your day? Fine. You know, you're not getting any information from
0: them. Well, and again, some of that's just normal. I mean, we were some talking about Some of that can be normal, before. yes. Like, yeah, teenagers get gloomy and it's strange, right? Yes, so then, yes. So, yeah, d- uh, separating the normal from the concerning
1: can be.
2: An so, issue. we're looking
1: at a pattern over a little bit of time. Okay. Yeah. We don't want to over respond to normal things. Mm-hmm. But.
0: So, response to, or, or how to recognize suicidal ideation then? And is it different from youth to adults? Or are you pretty much looking for the same stuff to know that somebody's a suicide
1: risk and I'm concerned and I need to take some action? We're always concerned if they're talking about it or just even you think maybe they're joking, but we always take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, Kids have access to so much information on death, how to commit suicide. It's like, are you kidding me? Um, There's so many different ways that they're getting information, and it's so accessible. Um, a kid may have a very difficult day and make a decision about their life. It's an eternity decision. Um, we've had, or I know of a couple situations where uh, maybe there was a teenage relationship, and maybe she breaks up with him, and it's so de- devastating that he says, I'm going to kill myself. Nobody believes him. and. Few days later, he does it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so we really listen on a deeper level when they start talking it and using those words. Um, one of the things that usually happens is once a person, a teen or an adult, has struggled with suicide, and then if they, they make that decision. They made a decision how. They made a decision when, and then all of a sudden. You see them, and they like kind of seem okay. They're like they're getting better, and you go, ah. But what? What's happened is they've made their decision. They're relieved, and they appear better, but they're not.
0: They've just come to peace with the fact that this is all going to be over doing. pretty soon anyway. Yep. Yeah.
1: I
2: yeah. think there's a big paradigm shift too, but especially now with moving out of the prosecute Cavorkian world. Yeah, yes. to Trudeau in Canada saying anybody can get euthanized anytime they want to by walking in any clinic. If you say, I don't feel valued, I'm not giving anything back, so can I go ahead and end my life? And they're happy to do that for you. They, Netherlands started all this yeah. and then kind of flowed into the U.S. And it's people are seeing that. They see what Canada is doing and, well, that seems to be the right thing to do now. It's a weird shift yes. from prosecuting people who help uh, to in people's lives to those that are saying, I just think that's the right thing to do now. Right, it's a quick shift too. So you lose value of self.
1: That's that whole thing about the lack of value for life. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's a, there's an underlying cultural philosophy that I, I still haven't pinned down beyond. I mean, the word secularism gets thrown around by people in our our line of work, right? It's like it's kind of the boogeyman phrase, like yeah. oh, secularism, which is true. That is what leads to all this stuff, but I'd like to get more specific about it at some point. I haven't, I haven't exactly figured out you know, how to nail down, like, okay, this is the lie or the core of the lie that leads to that, because there's so many different ways to articulate it. You know? But something, something got bought into on a massive level that leads to valuing death over life Uh, so i was just in mexico a couple of weeks ago yeah i was i was in oaxaca and uh in aguascalientes oaxaca is actually the city where dios de los muertos started and so the day of the dead celebration starts there and it's literally just a death cult it it, that's all it is and it's not negative for them it's like you know oh yeah we're gonna have a good like for us halloween is kind of spooky and and funny and a little bit ironic you know things like that for them it's there's nothing spooky about it if you talk to them it's like yeah, we we commune with our dead ancestors, and so death for us is is that point where we have to interact through that with our ancestors. It's actually a positive thing for them, and so and then they got all these statues of their gods and this and that. And I'm looking around this, thinking, all right. So you guys worship spirits and you offer sacrifices to spirits who celebrate the who, who celebrate and hasten the point where you're nothing more than a pile of bones. Mm-hmm. so these you know now in Christian terminology we would say these demons want you dead right and they would agree with every bit of that and they say yes that's a good thing and we're just looking at them like this is insanity mm-hmm. but we come from the, the the we come from the starting point of God says you have value right that's who you are God says I have called you by name you know or you know um, uh, turn to me and be saved so mm-hmm. that's whose we are right mm-hmm. and God says I have a plan for you, you were created for good works, which I planned out beforehand that you might walk in. Then, so that's what we're doing here, and they just reject every tenet of that in their local religion. Mm-hmm. And then I come back home, and I'm like, "Oh, we do all the same stuff just without the statues." Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a worship of death or a fascination with, with yes. death. So, yeah, I mean, seen from that perspective, I'm kind of processing out loud here, but you know, seen from that perspective, everything that you're describing and the, and the spike and the, the upping and in intensity of all this stuff. It makes perfect sense. Now the problem is it's not that easy to explain to somebody who's suffering with this stuff because those aren't the thoughts that are on the front of their mind. Right. The thoughts are something akin to hopelessness. Which by the way, I think it was brilliant that you put that in the name of the center, right? Like there's a story about that. A place for hope. What's the story?
1: <laughs> story is we had it we first started in 1984. Um, you know our full name is the Center for Counseling and Health Resources. That's kind of but we were doing client surveys and clients kept writing, this is a place of hope. This is a place that kept coming up. And I go, oh, that's a much better name. And then we had the internet come out, and our website is aplaceofhope.com. I go, so really, it was the clients that named us. Cool. From feedback surveys. Yeah. Go, that's, that's it. Huh. So we changed our
0: name. Good. <laughs> yeah, like we did the same thing at our church. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. so... Yeah. the. To, to circle back to something, I didn't quite finish this, uh, this, this track of thought before I let us get derailed. How does, is, is there a way in which a 12-year-old's brain now, let's say, or a 15-year-old, whatever, right? How a 12-year-old's brain now is physically different than a 12-year-old's brain 100 years ago before a lot of the inundation of technology and things like that, right? Because our behaviors do rewire our brains to, to some degree, sometimes a large degree, depending on the behavior. Yes. So are, are there physiological differences between now, between youth, let's say, now, and 100 years ago?
1: There must be. Um, Greg mentioned Dr. Amen, and I had contacted him a while back and asked him for some brain spec scans of, I wanted to see an eating disorder brain, I wanted to see a a person who had recovered, and we began to look at that. And then I did some training with Dr. Amen on the brain scans and because we do see, as people get better, their brains change. And then there is a... Though there's no diagnosis for it, there is a a digital addiction. Mm -hmm. There there is a digital addiction. And so uh, the brain scans... Of a person who I would say is a digital addict, the highlighted areas um, of the brain uh, are the same areas, and this was fascinating to see. Of like a cocaine brain, yeah, it's highlighting the same areas of the brain. Hmm. So, wow, that is addictive. Yeah,
2: well, Arlene Pelican and, and uh, Gary Chapman wrote a book on called Screen Kids. Yeah, and then Screen that was a Kids for Parents, book. Screen Kids for Grandparents to kind of you yes. move into that world and it's it's effective kids yeah. read through that and go but how do i turn it off i'm addicted to this this and and the games are designed for that right
1: absolutely so mm-hmm.
2: they want them addicted so they buy more and it's like how do i get my kid off of screen time in order to get their brain to go back to rewiring yeah. around it so. yeah
0: yeah so i want to go back to the suicide thing um in from march 2020 to march 2021 we, as, as pastors at our church, did, I think it was 23 suicide interventions. Um, almost none of them were our church members, right? Some of them were. People were on hard times. But a lot of it was our church members calling us up saying, hey, my cousin or my uncle or my friend or whatever, who didn't know us, didn't, you know, most of the time didn't know Christ, and they needed some help. They said, can you get over here? We lost one. The other 22, mm. by God's grace, made it, right? Right. And that was, and I just stopped counting in March 2021. There was plenty after that too, but that was really, you know, crunch time. There was one point where I had I had um, five people's guns that I had confiscated. We had to get really good at figuring out the law on on confiscating firearms <laughs> yes, because yes. We're, we're pulling them out of people's hands and saying, "Hey, I'm I'm going to go ahead and leave with this." And so we had to figure out the law around that. Actually, I literally I called Greg. I said, "Hey." Um, I got a bunch of guns in my back seat and they don't belong to me and I'm driving. I'm about to go to federal prison if I get pulled over. What do I need <laughs> to do? And he said call this guy, get all the run. I said, "Okay." <laughs> so, yeah. But there there was just a lot of that, right? So, what I noticed was, you know, we we're, we're not we're not uh, like most of us, Pastor Greg's an exception. We're not trained experts at that point in how to do this, right? What was happening was we were just going in and providing some kind of community Right in the yes, moment, somebody cares, and somehow it wasn't through brilliant answers and, and you know, strategy and this and that, it just something clicked, and these people chose life. You know what I mean? So, what does somebody do if they see somebody who they suspect or they know is suicidal? Because our answer is show up and figure it out from there, and that seems to be kind of effective. But you know, we've learned a lot since then. You can articulate this, I'm sure, better than we can. If somebody's concerned about a suicidal tendency or, or risk. Where do they go?
1: Yeah, and that's a, that's a hard one. Don't do it alone. I think we really need to involve a couple people. And you may have a loved one who's really, really struggling. There is a place to intervene. And there is a place, because what we want to do, we, we want to save a life. And it's difficult to predict human behavior. Sometimes a person will say, I'm fine, I'm fine. But they're not. Um, and... What we want to do is really come alongside, and, and it's not so much about, um, you, you always want to, and you did the right thing, we want to get, is it a weapon, or how have you thought about killing yourself? We do need to know that. But also ask the question, tell me how bad it really is. Help me understand. Let them talk about what's going on as well. That's really important. Are, are they at the end? Are they really in despair and despondency? Um, and I'm going to ask them, how long have you felt this way? And then I'm going to let them talk. Too often we want to fix it pretty quick. Let them express whatever's going on. And then I'm going to come to a point where I want to be a part of, of helping you. And so I'm going to find uh, somebody who can really be of help. And I'm going to tell them what I'm going to do. Um, I probably am not going to leave that person alone. trust I'm always going to say, trust your gut. You kind of have a sense. Um, Always, if it's somebody that needs to be watched for a while, but start on a professional intervention plan. Our goal is to help them, but our goal is also to pass them into the right hands who can take it from here. Uh, That can be really frightening if it's just one person trying to do that.
0: Yeah, I remember one time we were on one of these situations together, Pastor Greg, and um you know, I was kind of taking my cues from from you and not only did you have, you know, a lot more experience with it, um but also you had the the primary relationship there. So I was kind of running support on that one, and I'm hanging back kind of watching you work, you know, and um uh, just seeing if I needed to jump in anywhere to to lend support to what you were doing. And you did exactly what he said in in a lot of ways, just just letting them get it out, right? And what was falling out of that guy's mouth was some stuff that was tempting to jump in and correct, right? right? But you didn't do it, and so he he was saying, you know, and I got to clean this up, you know, language wise. but yeah. <laughs> He was saying things like, "Life sucks. I want to die." And you were trying to ask him these questions about essentially going towards a place of hope, like you know, what does the solution look like? What would make you, you know, what would make that sure. better? And his answers were like. Dying would make this whole thing go away. That's all I want to do. And you just kind of, you know, okay. And you'd ask him more questions and just let him, let him vomit the thing. And I think that goes to to one of our tendencies a lot of times is to hold back asking certain questions, mm-hmm. right? So Dr. Jans, if you could kind of coach people up on, let me, let me put a prompt out there and you can argue against it. Um, I, I don't want to mention the idea of suicide because that's just going to plant the idea in their brain, right? And I don't want to be, I don't want to push them to somewhere they weren't already thinking about. So I'm not going to ask them if they're, if they're suicidal. I just want to be there and not bring anything up. What would you say to that?
1: I would say, tell me how you're really feeling. I need to know how you, what's really going on. I may follow up with the question, have you thought about hurting yourself or harming yourself? Uh, and they usually will say what they're thinking. And I might at, even ask them, do you have plans? How do you plan on doing this? I'm, I'm going to ask them specifics once I've started to build some trust. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want them to talk for a while. I want them to tell me how bad. I really do need to know how bad it is. And, and like you say, it's easy sometimes to want to correct them and so forth. But I just want them to tell me really how bad it is. I want to know how they're feeling. There reaches a point where the mind is not rational. Where they really do believe this is my only option. They really believe that. This is my only option. Um, and so part of me is I'm buying time with them so that we can create other options. Mm-hmm. They don't see it yet, but they see this is my only option. So, um, and this is where, you know, I, if they, I have a gun You know, I'm going to ask well, What are you thinking? What, do you have a plan? I, I really am going to ask them that um, Why are you not afraid To bring that up And plant the idea in their head? Because they probably Have already struggled with it And I, I'm just bringing it out if, if they're that despondent They've already had those thoughts Okay yeah. yeah And one of the There's kind of a list Of suicide myths And one of them is If I bring it up I'm giving them the idea. And what we've found out is the opposite is true. If I bring it up, I'm going to make it safe for them to talk about. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. By the way, that was one of the most helpful parts of your book. So there's, there's a plug from me. This is not a shameless plug from you. But from me to the audience here, go get that, that book, So Much to Live For. Okay. Because, yeah, yeah that, that list of, of myths was yeah. uh, really well put. Okay, so let me, let me kind of, for the last segment here of the interview, let me go through those, those big three Anxiety, depression, and addiction. And just get some definition on what they are and what they're not. Because, and we, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to get into some more detail because um, people run towards these, these uh, labels very quickly. And I notice this especially with the word addiction. Because there, there's this idea that if it's an addiction, it's not my responsibility. And so people will say, oh, I'm addicted. Now, we all know pornography addiction exists... But guys will say, oh, I'm, I'm addicted to porn. It's like, no, you're not. You need to develop some self-control, and you love sinning. Sure. So you need repentance, right? You don't need treatment. You're going to repent. That's not always the case, but sometimes it is. Um, so let, let's start with addiction then. What is addiction, and what's just a, a habit that needs repentance and reforming? How can you tell the difference?
1: <laughs> a habit I can generally change. <laughs> addiction it ends up controlling me. Okay. And addiction is... Um, I it, It's... It has the power and control over me. But I like to live in denial. I like to say I can stop any time. So probably with addiction, I have probably tried to stop. I've probably told myself, okay, I'm not going to drink this weekend. And you've you've told yourself that. But you end up doing the very thing. You want to justify it. You also want to say things like, it's really not hurting anybody else. This is my own business. Um, And then you start to believe you need it. I need this in order to feel normal. So you start to create your own reality. That's an addiction. And it's controlling you. You've tried to stop. Others have probably made comments to you or asked you questions. And you probably are doing this in secrecy. People will hide alcohol consumption, the amount, in secrecy. Um, well, Pornography or sexual addiction—that's a great one. I try to keep it in secrecy. Mm-hmm. So, um, am I misusing pills? So, so there's always that secrecy component.
0: Okay. all right. And then um, depression. There yeah. is there's sadness. There's prolonged sadness. There's various things that might lead you to emotional downswings, even for you know periods of time. But then sure. there's actual clinical depression that needs treatment how do we know when we're looking at one versus the other in somebody else
1: sure depression is something that's it's not going away and I can't seem to shake it off we all have bad days or troublesome days bad Um, season at work tough time with the wife there might be a period of kind of some chronic stress and I get down okay but I maintain my resiliency if I'm depressed I don't that resiliency is gone If I'm depressed, um, I don't feel uh, like I can change it and I can't. So a depressed person, sometimes if you live with one, it can be frustrating because you've tried to do everything you can to help them and they probably feel like they have and and nothing changes. So it's really challenging. Um, Depression can be looked at on a scale. Uh, to mild to medium And it gets worse and worse So I start to have Those suicidal thinking I start to think It'd be better off If I wasn't even here You start to think that way Hopelessness um, But um, Obviously there's Sleep issues If I'm depressed Either wanting to sleep too much Or I'm Waking up in the middle of the night uh, Probably appetite issues Either I'm Eating all the time Or I'm not eating at all So it's kind of those extremes Um Depression. I'm probably isolating. I want to withdraw more and more from people. So those are a few of the things to look at.
0: Okay. Yeah, I remember one time uh, in, in the early days of our marriage, I wasn't a pastor yet, um, but I was. I was working, you know, four jobs, and the bills still weren't getting paid. Yes. We're having babies. It was just, you know, it was poor stories, right? And we've all got to have some poor stories. But we were in the middle of that, and I was just exhausted, right? I told my wife one time, I said, I don't even feel like going outside. I feel like going to bed, putting the covers over my head and not talking to anybody for a week and just sleeping. Yes. And she's like, that doesn't sound like you. And she got a little bit freaked out because you know, she's like, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm something of an extrovert, right? And so she's, yes. like, she's like, something's off here. And um, so her first response was, I wonder if his diet is okay because the, the right. sleep has been a problem and I've been running all over the place. So she just started pumping me full of uh, you know, vitamins and supplements and healthy foods and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, one time she saw my eye twitching and she was like, that's a magnesium or potassium deficiency, whatever it was. So she gives me a bunch of bananas and other stuff. Anyway, about three, four days later, yeah. oh, and she also gave me her prenatal vitamins.
1: There you go. Right?
0: She, she was like, here. So I'm taking these prenatal vitamins. We started calling them uh, Vitamans just yes. to make me feel a little more masculine about it. But uh, fixed me right up. So in that case, it wasn't clinical depression. It was it was a uh, nourishment yeah. issue. Probably a difficult right? time. And sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It had some physiological effects. All right, last one then. So we've got we've got addiction, we've got depression, anxiety. Uh, You mentioned that anxiety always has a physical component to it. There's a physical manifestation of this prolonged stress. At what point are we talking? At what point do we start thinking we're looking at an anxiety disorder rather than somebody who's just not handling the stresses of life well?
2: We
1: may all have seasons of anxiety, natural. Um, Anxiety is different than worry. Worry is the mental process. Worry is the what ifs. What if I didn't wear the right thing? What if they don't like me? That's all the what ifs. If I keep cycling enough what ifs, I can create anxiety mm-hmm. um, and by how I'm thinking. So, but anxiety, I may get headaches. I may feel that in my gut where um, anxiety. People usually point to their gut. It's really interesting. Um, you may notice with anxiety, concentration's hard. All right, simple decisions like oh um what am I going to wear today and you can't make a decision you know um so but anxiety may also be I'm am isolating like depression anxiety I'm getting more and more physical symptoms I am that headache keeps coming back and I people may even describe joint pains Um, really yeah it's like I have body aches Um, a lot of times goes along with anxiety um Appetite is usually affected with anxiety. And remember, anxiety is progressive. Anxiety left untreated. That's why I always say the medical part is important. That's why we do blood work. Okay, are there, are there hormonal issues, um, which really can create anxiety? Uh, do I have, am I low in vitamin D? That's a big one. Uh, that'll create some anxiety and some depression. Uh, one we see fairly well vitamin D we see a lot uh, is the low thyroid people are have there's a thyroid issue and that low thyroid puts out physiological anxiety Mm -hmm. so it's so um, my point is it's not always just in your head there could be a, a medical or physiology reason for anxiety so okay. always cover that base.
0: Yeah, and if somebody does see somebody suffering from, you know, that level of or that type of anxiety, uh, I'll just go ahead and point them to the book and the workbook that you wrote about anxiety sure. because that, as far as I'm concerned, that's the textbook on it. That's something that, Pastor Greg, that you're using as the counseling pastor. Uh, you know, I'll periodically you use that to kind of help people through those issues. It's a great we resource. We just need
1: to think of what what are all the interference factors that are yeah. potentially going on.
0: Yeah. Well, Dr. Jantz, we've dominated so much of your time, and I really appreciate you being available to help equip people. Well, you were not short around.
1: on questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, every, you know, and every one of these could spawn 15 more, right? Yeah. Because this is like we're just trying to help people, and they are an endless well of, we, I should say, are an, are an endless well yes. of, of problems and conundrums and gifts and, and pluses and minuses and all of that. So anyway, thank yeah. you for your, your, your time and your it's investment. It's really,
2: in really important. So that I'm glad we could have this time.